Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast of La Trobe Asia, where we examine the news, events, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and this month saw China celebrate 70 years since victory against the Japanese invaders. The Chinese Communist Party held a massive military parade, which was as much a celebration as it was a statement to the rest of the world. With me to discuss what we should take away from this event are two guests, Professor Nick Bisley, Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. Welcome to you. Hi, man. And Dr. James Leibold, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Politics and Philosophy at La Trobe University. Welcome to you. Thanks, Matt. No one was expecting China to go into this celebration half-heartedly, so I was hoping to get a bit of an impression just to start with from both of you. What kind of scale were we talking about with this parade, and what did the Chinese invest in this? Well, it's the third biggest thing held ever in Tiananmen Square, at least since the establishment of the People's Republic. The previous two big military jamborees of this kind uh, were held to celebrate respectively the 50th and 60th anniversaries of founding the People's Republic of China. This is smaller and they count every tank and every soldier and every battalion. They're very acutely aware of the significance and symbolism of size and scale. So it was smaller in terms of the numbers of people involved and the tanks and the kit. But nonetheless, it was huge in scale and size, something that would have cost millions and millions of dollars plus massive opportunity costs to set the thing up. The city was shut down for weeks in advance. Factories were closed previously to allow the normally very hazy, smoggy, polluted skies of Beijing to be clear. One wag on uh, Twitter described the colour that they were seeking was anti-fascist blue in the sky to get the spirit of the moment. This was a Division One grade A big deal. A national holiday was called. Days leading up to it, the citizenry were sort of encouraged to get into the martial spirit of things. Television uh, stations were reprogrammed with, you know, quote-unquote appropriate material. And it was as much sort of historical celebration, but also in kind of royal wedding feel to it. So people were encouraged to have block parties and street parties and get together to watch all of this and to sort of celebrate and be positive. Mm. And, you know, in classic Chinese Communist Party fashion, it's a absolutely fabricated event, but one which was thought down and choreographed to the sort of every last step. So you say that it was smaller, or was that strategically so, smaller than the 50, 60 year celebration? very deliberate yeah and they sent out all this information about exactly how many things were involved from the biggest to the smallest scales these things follow a very tight scripted degree of precedence you know there's been the 15th of these military parades most of them held in the 1950s the 1960s they agreed that they would only be held every 10 years it's quite well choreographed as nick talked about right down to the dress that officials had to wear, the type of cars used. But in some ways, this was quite unprecedented in the sense that in the past, all the military parades have been held to celebrate the anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. This is the first time that China's ever held a military parade to mark another occasion, in this case, the uh, 70th anniversary of uh, Victory Day against the Japanese in this uh, anti-fascist war. So this parade had a number of agendas to a number of different people and uh, Xi Jinping probably had in his mind what this parade was all about and the people of China had their own vision of what it was all about and the outside world as well. So what should we be taking away from all of this and what do you think is, is going on for Xi Jinping and what would he see this parade as being about? I think I can speak to that domestically, and Nick is much better placed to talk about it internationally. I mean, domestically, I saw it, an attempt by Xi to sort of say, I'm in charge. 
And the reason he needs to do that is because I think there's some fragility in his rule and his ability to push forward his agenda. Since coming to power in 2013, he convened this uh, third plenum of the Central Committee, which was set up to push forward the reform agenda. It came up with 300 different proposals on the table. Thus far, not a single one of those proposals has been pushed through. So he's very frustrated. One of the keys to the success of China's reform and opening up beginning in the 1980s with Deng Xiaoping was kind of devolving power and decision-making down to the provincial level, down to the prefecture level, even down to the county level. And in some ways, Xi, while he's quite powerful in Beijing and Zhongnanhai, you know, with the military behind him, he's kind of hamstrung. He's being frustrated in his ability to push through a lot of these reforms in a very complicated uh, bureaucratic structure with a lot of vested interests. There are signs coming out of Beijing that a lot of that decision-making that he has kind of gathered up around himself, he's set up a lot of these leadership small groups with himself as chair, a lot of that now is being devolved back down to the state council, that essentially he's kind of giving up his kind of workaround approach and trying to sort of push a lot of these reforms through the state council. But whether the state council can do it, you know, that's also uh, an unknown question at this stage. There's a couple of things. I mean, I think one of the important symbolic things they were trying to do was not just the I'm in charge, Xi Jinping is very much paramount leader, but also to really ram home this sense of particular vision of Chinese identity, the sort of Chinese nationalism that the party has made central to what it does and why it's in charge. Primarily, the parade was about 1945 and the defeat of the Japanese and in the war that had been going on for eight years. It was also about the broader struggle against imperialism. So one of the symbols during the celebration was there was a red carpet that was 121 steps long. Each step was to represent a year since the start of the first Sino-Japanese War of 1894. It's about the big, long fight that China and Japan had that was, in essence, a kind of 50-year conflict in one way or another. But also, more broadly, this military march past shows the Chinese people, and it was really intended for the Chinese people, that China is strong again, and those foreigners who came and humiliated us and tore us apart and made us from being the biggest, proudest, most important country on the the planet to this backward, humiliated, disgraced people, that will never happen again, and it won't happen again because of us, because of the party. So there's a really not too subtle message. But the problem, you know, without getting too postmodern, is you have an intention to do something and you do something, you write a book, you make a play, you have no control over how people will interpret it, particularly outside of China. Interpretations of it leave people very concerned about how China sees itself and its place in the world, i.e. China's put this nationalist identity, which is about the world is out to get us and we have to protect ourselves from this hostile world through the use of military power. You know, if you're Xi Jinping, you have to symbolize to your people that you are a powerful, strong leader, and you do it in the fashion as if it were 1951 or 1875, i.e. big, bristling military power, then A, you're probably not as strong as you think you are, and B, it means that politically, when contests happen, then the military is front of mind. And so we've got a country that thinks about itself Mm. in deeply militarized terms, that thinks about the world as out to get it, that thinks that has been projecting it an identity to its population very explicitly that brings them up to have a sort of victimhood mentality. And that is a pretty dangerous combination. It seems to be, though, a portrayal that China is completely fine with with putting forward because Xi Jinping's message was all about peace in his speech and about a peaceful approach to everything. And yet the parade said pretty much the exact opposite. And I don't think it 
entirely worried him what interpretation the world was going to take away from that at all. It seemed like he was quite happy to, for everyone yeah. to have a mixed message. Well, the, the, well, the military is a big part of his power base. I yeah. mean, he's one of the first Chinese leaders to come to power with some experience in the military. He, unlike his predecessor, Hu Jintao, on um, anointment, did take over the chairmanship of the, uh, the Central Military Commission. Uh, he's worked very hard to uh, promote his generals up uh, through the ranks. And, and so in some ways you can interpret this parade as kind of throwing a bone to his major supporters in the military. In fact, if you look back at the history of these uh, military parades, the last two have occurred when Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin were quite uh, far into their tenure term. This came, you know, in the third year. And arguably, she could chair uh, at least two more of these military parades before he steps down in um, 2022. So I think there's an interesting relationship going on between the military and Xi Jinping. And as Nick said, the danger, of course, is what if the military says, well, it's time that we actually um, stand up, we actually do something. She's going to be in a very difficult and weak position to say no. Yeah, and I think, I think you're right that she doesn't care what other people think. I mean, I think that's actually a really important point that's often forgotten. And, and I guess the other thing is, in your other podcasts about ancient Rome, I always forget the Roman general who came up with the, if you want peace, prepare for war. That's where the adage comes from. That's what they're thinking. Mm. And certainly the language that he used in his speech was about, we're not going to do to others what others did to us. So we're not going to go out and invade and all that sort of stuff. And I don't think anyone, even the most kind of paranoid, conservative sort of China hawk, thinks China's about to do what the Soviet Union did and roll tanks across Eastern Europe and the like. But the problem is there's a lot of disputes about territory which are becoming increasingly militarized and which involve the risks of very serious conflict. You know, the the disputed territories in the East China Sea, the islands that the Japanese call the Senkaku, the Chinese call the Diaoyutai. The Americans have said, if if something happens here, this is covered by our treaty. This is a very explicit trigger for a good old-fashioned great power war. And what we saw in Beijing on the 3rd of September was a China that says, we're up for it. Mm. And that, to me, is a really disconcerting sign that it's not saying, what does it mean to be China today in the 21st century and to be proud about who we are? It means intercontinental ballistic mm. missiles rolling which, down unselfconsciously. Which, <laughs> which they haven't used. I mean, they haven't used any of their weapons. They haven't fought mm. a war since uh, 1979 against the Vietnamese. Which they lost. And which they lost. And so there are a lot of people in the military that say, hey, we've got these new toys. Why can't we use some of them? Mm. They look at the Americans, and the Americans have been involved in Afghanistan, Iraq, fighting against now ISIS. You can put yourself in the, the mindset of the Chinese military, you know, its generals, and, you know, they want to they wanna have a go. So let's talk about the guest list to the parade. All world leaders were nominally welcome, but very few took China up on the offer. Vladimir Putin was there in a prime position, as was Xi Jinping during the celebrations in Moscow earlier in the year, uh, which kind of indicates the, the close ties that those two countries would like everybody to think that they have. What else was in play here as far as a guest list goes? The symbolism of who's there and where they stand really matters. None of the major Western allies, all of whom were invited to attend at the highest level, attended. They all sent basically about as junior a a cabinet ministry type political figure as they could. So Australia sent the Minister for Veterans Affairs, which was a masterstroke. It's genius because it's exactly right. It's cabinet minister. Perfect. Veterans Affairs. This is about veterans. But boy, it's junior. And that was the cue for all of the major allies. The only notable head of state who was there was President Park Geun-hee from South Korea, and she had position number one. Putin was on one side, Park was on the other side. Putin is part of the authoritarian fan club, fine. But Park Geun-hee is an American ally, democracy, 
it's basically thought that she went because of Prime Minister Abe's statement on the 15th of August. So this was the 70th anniversary in Japan was treated in quite the opposite way from the Chinese, not mm. a military parade or anything. It was a, a statement of trying to come to terms with the past by Prime Minister Abe, which itself was quite controversial, reached out in that speech metaphorically to China and made what a lot of us thought were quite considerable concessions, not necessarily apologising and really kowtowing to the Chinese, but naming China, saying what Japan did wrong in China. Yeah, there was a sort of interesting passive voice aspect to it. But Korea was not mentioned by name once. The Korean reaction was, in essence, if you're going to treat us like that, we're going to Beijing. Yeah, um, That's the general take on it. Plus, Korea sees China as actually quite an important partner, not just economically, it's number one trade and investment partner, but also an important way of keeping a lid on North Korea. Briefly, North Korea, Kim Jong-un was going to go, but didn't like where his seat was, so opted out. For his safety, right? If, uh, he hasn't uh, left uh, North Korea. He's been to Moscow once, by all accounts. He wanted to be right next to Xi Jinping. North Korea is China's only treaty ally. And said, as your treaty ally, I should stand next to you. And of course, Xi Jinping doesn't want to mm. part by this. So they're just like, no, forget mm. it. And for the domestic uh, Chinese audiences, these praise are always an occasion to sort of see who's in and who's out in terms of political leaders. And there was a lot of uh, talk after the parade about the appearance of uh, Jiang Zemin, the former party secretary, who is now 89 years old, often thought to be in poor health, but he looked uh, reasonably robust. He could stand up by himself and uh, gave a big thumbs up. Of course, people interpreted various ways. Uh, there was also a lot of discussion about Hu Jintao, Xi Jinping's immediate uh, predecessor. The fact that he looked grumpy, he didn't want to be there. Finally, uh, Li Peng, the former premier who declared martial law and orchestrated the uh, troops to go in and clear the Tiananmen Square in uh, 1989, he was seen as looking quite feeble. They weren't there. It yeah. been really, oh my That's God. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because the way the Chinese political system has worked since Mao, essentially the party realized that Mao was a one-man despot. And the thinking had been since Mao that you had a paramount leader, you needed a paramount leader, but that person needed some checks and balances within the party and the, the predecessor was seen as playing an important role in that so that whoever came before you kind of lurks in the background just as a kind of counterweight and that always creates a degree of tension in the Chinese political system because you've got the previous guy behind you who's kind of potentially can always stymie what you're trying to do but it's seen within the party as an important way of ins ensuring that Maoism doesn't happen again and so the thinking at the moment is you know, you've got Xi Jinping, this guy who's been doing a kind of Mao concentration of power, and he has these tensions with his predecessor, and, and in particular, Jiang Zemin, who's seen as the most, most important of his predecessors. So having them all there says, it's all okay. Nothing to worry about here. It's all in line. But of course, as Jim says, yes, this is a closed society. Kremlinology that goes on with, uh, you know, who's staying next to whom and what does the thumbs up mean and how high did his thumb go up? <laughs> yeah, and, you know, Xi's anti-corruption campaign has targeted a lot of the allies of both Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. So there's tensions there. Don't uh, mistake that, you know, so they come together, but uh, it's carefully orchestrated and, um, you know, we really don't know how much contact uh, they have, probably very little outside of these formal events. So this kind of celebration slash show of force uh, never happens in isolation. So what else is going on around this parade at the moment? You mean militarily? What else are they doing? Well, yeah, there's a lot of flexing of muscles going on when China's mm. concerned, both they're, internally and externally. Militarily, they're in about their 15th year of a significantly increasing military expenditure. 
they're developing a whole range of new warfighting capabilities, as the military calls it, basically kit to fight wars a long way from home, to fight high-intensity wars, to be able to extend China's physical military reach well beyond China. So historically, the Chinese military couldn't go far, literally offshore, let alone you know into places like the South China Sea or beyond. At the moment, they've got one aircraft carrier, they're developing another one, they're developing new and this time ones that actually work well and are not complete death traps, new attack submarines, looking to use submarines as a platform to launch intercontinental ballistic missiles with nuclear weapons. At the moment, all they've got is land-based missile systems, which are more easily defeated. Submarine ones are virtually impossible to to defend against, so it gives them a big edge in terms of their deterrent capability. And they're looking to professionalise their military. So at the moment, it's close to 2 million men primarily under arms, most of whom are conscripts, and conscript armies these days are thought to be pretty second-rate, very inefficient, very poor discipline and the like. And so they're trying to turn it into a professional force. And this 300,000-man cut is presented as, we mean business in in terms of peace. It means, no, no, it's just part of your professionalisation program. Mm, You want a smaller, better fighting force. Mm. But what is China trying to do? China is trying to be in a position that soon it will not feel that it is vulnerable to American military power. At the moment, China depends for things like basic energy on stuff that's coming from land and sea but primarily by sea through the Straits of Malacca up the South China Sea and into the various Chinese ports on the eastern seaboard at the moment the US Navy could choke that all off if it wanted to if they could do that and the Chinese want to be in a position where America can't do that there's other talk about things like the string of pearls which is a notion of having China having a series of military bases across the Indian Ocean most people think that's kind of, if that's going to happen, that's 50 years away. It's I, not, I read it's not rumors soon. yesterday about Africa. Yeah, and stuff in Africa. I mean, this is not practical. They can barely get their ships to Africa at the moment, let alone have a base there. They do want to be able to have a capacity to defend Chinese interests far from China. And China is a trade-dependent country, and a lot of that trade sails across the Indian Ocean. And at the moment, the Indian Ocean, no one has any naval sort of predominance there in the way the U.S. has in the Western Pacific. It's big, expensive, hard to do, politically challenging, and their priorities at the moment are closer to home. But this isn't going to stop anytime soon. Jim, priorities closer to home. Yeah, well, uh, domestically, I think there's a concern that maybe the reform process has kind of stalled. You know, it's been two years since the third plenum. None of the uh, 300-odd proposals have been pushed through successfully. Uh, There's concern that, uh, you know, GDP growth is slowing. There are jitters on the Shanghai stock market. Concerns that how do we kind of jumpstart the reform process once again. You know, the big question in the the Chinese economy is how do we shift the economic model away from an export investment uh, model to a more domestic consumption model. In order to do that, there's a whole raft of other kind of policies from HUCO reform to SOE reform that needs to be pushed forward uh, at the same time. So the problem with a lot of these reform issues, they're, they're intertwined with other domestic issues, and they're uh, intertwined with a lot of deeply entrenched vested interests in this large Chinese bureaucratic system. How to orchestrate that, push it through, has been a difficult challenge. I mean, Xi Jinping initially thought the best way to do that was to kind of concentrate power in his own hands. But he's starting to realize that actually that, that method hasn't succeeded. So, um, so a more united China would be of benefit to him and his interests? Well, he needs to, he needs to find a way to get the, the system working again and breaking down vested interests. To do that, uh, and do that successfully, you either had to have a lot of political capital that you can spend to push things through, or you had to kind of uh, carefully 
work the game, you know, work the relationships. And that takes time. Mm. Um, and he does have 10 years. I mean, he's got seven more years. But, you know, it's now an open question whether he'll be able to do that. Will he be able to succeed in, in pushing forward the reforms? Will he have enough time? What happens if the economy uh, continues to decline? What happens there? Oh, you know, I'm not convinced that this whole thing couldn't unravel. You know, I think he has grand ambitions that uh, he will be there for the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party in, in 2021, another large military parade, but that may not uh, eventuate. Xi Jinping's House of Cards. Very good. That's all the time we have today. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast of La Trobe Asia. My thanks to my guests today, Nick and Jim. Thank you both. Thanks, Thanks, mate. You can follow Nick Bisley on Twitter. He's at Nick Bisley. You can follow James Leibold on Twitter. He's at Jay Leibold. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.